Well, if you want to get out your Bibles and turn with me to Luke, we'll be studying Luke together tonight. So good to see each of you here this evening. Um, Hope that everybody had a great afternoon and enjoyed your time together with your family or taking a nap or whatever it is that you were were up to. We've been studying through the, the different books of the Bible, and that is coming close to the end. We now have the book of Luke, the book of Acts, and First and Second Chronicles, which I have not done yet. So uh, we'll be doing Luke and Acts, and then we'll be jumping back in time to First and Second Chronicles. And all of this is almost wrapping up in perfect timing for us to do uh, a study together of overviews of different books. And remember that all of these overview sermons are available online so if you're unable to i don't want to give you an excuse not to but if for some reason you're having a bad week and you're unable to read through the entire book uh, it might be a, a valuable resource for you on our website to go and look and see if you can find the sermon on that book now uh, we're going to just do, do another overview tonight and uh and hopefully this will help you in your understanding of the different gospels uh, we've been working our way through each of the Gospels. This is the last one. I've already done John. I did that uh, a long time ago. But we did Matthew, we did Mark, and now we're to the book of Luke. And if you remember, as I was studying Matthew and Mark with you, we, we, said, or we, we, we noticed that uh, God gave us all these different Gospels because these men are writing to different people to give them a different perspective, a, a different understanding. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, the, the picture that, that Matthew paints of Jesus is uh, in a Jewish context. He's trying to help the Jews to understand the Jesus uh, that is the Messiah who fulfilled all the scriptures. In Mark, it's more so a Roman context. So very much uh, giving you the impression that Jesus is powerful. He is the son of God. He is the king of kings and, and the one who is ruling all the earth. And that, that picture is very clearly painted for us in the book of Mark. Uh, and John, it was that you may believe, and it had a lot of uh, signs that were given to impress upon the Christian reader who might be in doubt that, yes, Jesus is truly the, the Messiah, he is the Christ, and, and many did not believe him, but we must believe him because of what he's shown to us. But what about Luke? Well, Luke is the longest of all the Gospels. Do not be deceived (laughs) whenever you see 24 chapters in the book of Luke. Luke is actually the longest book in the New Testament. Some of these chapters contain 80 verses or 70 verses or 60 verses. There's there's a ton of verses in each of these chapters, so that makes it the longest book in the New Testament. Uh, But that tells us something, doesn't it? This is a gospel that's going to have more information in it than the other gospels do. To have that much uh, wording and, and information is, is going to be helpful for us as we, as we study it together. But let's start off with reading the first four verses to understand the purpose that Luke had in writing this book. Notice it says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative..." of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, 
having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So as you, as you read through this first little bit, you see that Luke acknowledges there are others who have written accounts of Jesus' life. They've, they've undertaken the, the, the relaying of the narrative of the, the life of Jesus in different ways, and he felt like he was in a position where he would be qualified to do this. Now Luke, uh, we read from the book of Acts, he, he'll reveal to us that he is a doctor who followed Paul on his missionary journeys and spent much time with Paul. Uh, but he wants to give his own account. Apparently he's not just a follower of Paul, but he's been a Christian for a long time and he's been interacting with people who witnessed all of these things. Maybe he himself has witnessed some of these things. And so he feels as though, after following all these things closely, he can write an orderly account to a man by the name of Theophilus that will give him certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. So the picture is that Theophilus is a man who needs greater certainty. And Luke is trying to give that to him by writing the book of Luke. But he also writes to Theophilus the book of Acts. So really this is the first volume of two volumes that he writes to Theophilus. Notice the name Theophilus, that uh, it, it's given a title. Most excellent Theophilus. Isn't that an interesting way to talk to someone, to call them most excellent? Um, you know, we don't really see anybody calling anybody most excellent throughout the scriptures except for one man. In Acts chapter 26, verse 25, we learn that Festus, who was the governor of the region of Judea, was, was uh, 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 addressed as most excellent. And so he's a governor, and, and he is addressed in this way to give reverence to his position of authority. So we don't know for sure, but it's interesting to think that possibly Theophilus is some kind of an official who was given uh, some kind of power and authority, who has now been converted, who Luke is writing this account to. And notice that it ends, uh, the, the book of Acts ends, with Paul in Rome in, in prison. And so would Luke be writing a letter to a Roman official? Is that, is that what he's doing as he's, as he's in Rome, writing these two books? I don't know. Uh, it's very fascinating to think about, and it's very fascinating to look at the book of Luke considering that this might very well be the case. The book of Luke is exactly what you would want to write to a Roman official who has recently been converted to Christ to explain Jesus to him. Luke is not written in a way that's very Jewish. He doesn't go through and talk about all the fulfillment of all kinds of different things. He actually explains a lot of the Jewish heritage things like, like Mark does in some ways. But what's most fascinating about Luke and why it makes sense for Theophilus maybe to be a Roman uh, official of some kind is that Luke highlights Jesus' compassion. And he specifically notes throughout how men ought to respond and ought to live with the knowledge of how compassionate and gracious and wonderful Jesus is. So it's kind of like a handbook for a, a newer Christian to understand the compassion of Jesus and how we as Christians ought to live compassionate lives. So as you think about all the different uh, Gospels, I, I hope that you'll look at this one particularly 
uh, with affection. I do. I love, I love reading this book, all the information that's given in it, and the way that it points to Jesus' compassionate nature and, and how he loved and he, he cared for those who were uh, outcast and, and uh, the fringe of society is very encouraging and motivational for us. Uh, to break up the book and understand the book as we kind of work our way through it, we're going to be rushing a little bit, right? It's the longest book in the New Testament, so we're not going to be spending a ton of time in each of these sections or reading a lot of verses. But uh, if you notice in the first three chapters, you have a description of uh, not just the birth of Jesus that Matthew gives us, but the announcement of John the Baptist, the announcement of Jesus, Uh, And in those announcements, we have a description of the purpose of each of these men, how John was was going to be the one who turns the hearts of the fathers to the children, turns the hearts of the people to God, and how he is going to prepare the way for the, the, the Messiah to come. And then Jesus, how he is going to be the king, how he's going to be set up on the throne. And Luke doesn't bring up a bunch of verses to kind of uh, explain how it's the fulfillment of all that. He just says, that's what Jesus what, uh, came for. That's why he was going to be born. The angels foretold this to Mary and to Elizabeth, uh, that these men were going to be for these purposes. It also gives us uh, their actual birth uh, kind of songs that, that the Mary, the mother of Jesus, had and also that the father of John had, uh, which points out that God has shown mercy to his people. He's been compassionate toward his people. And how God is going to... Um, he has is, he is, he is created, or as you, as you can read, let's read, uh, chapter 1, verse 76, beginning. It says, and you, child, and this is John, uh, John's father talking, to, talking about John, Zechariah talking about John, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I love that picture. The sunrise. He's given a sunrise, you know. Uh, essentially, the prophet is coming right before Jesus as the, the, the light starts to shine, even though there's no sun showing up yet. Essentially, that's the way Zechariah talks about his son, John, and about Jesus, who is coming after him. So there's a lot of information and a lot of really fascinating stuff that you don't see anywhere else uh, in that first chapter, especially the 80-verse chapter. And then in chapter 2, it talks about John coming and, and his, his preaching. It talks about Jesus growing up uh, and how he uh, was, was kind of lost for a period of time by his parents because he was teaching in the temple at the age of 12, and that's not anything you're going to find anywhere else in Scripture. Chapter 3, you read about John preparing the way and Jesus uh, being baptized. That's, that's all a lot of typical stuff you find throughout uh, most of the Gospels. And then you have a genealogy at the end of chapter 3. Matthew puts his genealogy first. Luke puts his at the end of chapter 3, kind of wrapping up this introductory section. And it doesn't just go from Jesus to Abraham, but it goes all the way back to Adam. You do that because everybody is related through Adam 
so even though Theophilus would be a Greek or a Roman, he would care about the fact that uh, that's, that's the lineage of Jesus, maybe. I don't know. Uh, and then you get into chapter 4, and this begins the next major section. From chapter 4 all the way through uh, the majority of chapter 9, we read a lot of the same stories that we read in the other gospel accounts. They're written a little bit differently from a little different perspective. Again, he's trying to give the impression that Jesus is compassionate and merciful, and so he gets that idea across. We read about the wilderness. We read about him healing, casting out demons. We read about him choosing his disciples, and, and there's this picture of compassion and mercy and love toward uh, those whom Jesus uh, heals and calls. One of the fascinating parts of this little section, in, in chapter 5, uh, whenever uh, they toil, all, the fishermen have toiled all night, and, and Jesus tells them, cast your net out for another catch after preaching for a period of time. We read that Peter fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That, that's such a profound statement of humility that we see in, in Simon Peter, that I think is, is, again, kind of pointing to his desire, Luke's desire to help Theophilus understand who we're supposed to be. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. There's humility in that statement. It kind of colors the disciples as humble men, men of humble means, not proud and arrogant men who thought that they deserved to be with Jesus, but men who completely understood they were unworthy of that. And then Jesus comes in and says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And so a picture of his love and his compassion even toward his disciples. In chapter 6, we see kind of an alternate version of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Well, in chapter 6, Luke gives us a little bit of a different version of that. Uh, if you start reading in verse 20, and, and, and most likely... Jesus gave that sermon on many different occasions and altered it, to, altered it to fit his audience. It says, He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn you in the name, name of evil. Uh, on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so the fathers did to the prophets. Notice the Beatitudes are kind of shortened. And then he adds this, but woe to you who are rich, for you, uh, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so the fathers did to the false prophets. So you have kind of an additional uh, bit of information. The blessings that, that go to those who are humble and the woes that go to those who are proud. And then from there he focuses in on loving your enemies. And then he talks about judging others. Now if, if Theophilus is a Roman official, if that's truly who he is, most excellent Theophilus, then you can see how these Beatitudes are kind of catered to fit his situation. The blessings are for those who are poor in spirit, those who are hungering and thirsting, and then there's these woes for those who are proud, and then there's a statement about loving your enemies and not being spiteful or vengeful, not judging people in a harsh and, and judgmental way, uh, having good 
fruit that comes from your tree and, and following after the ways of Jesus. So this is kind of an altered version of the Sermon on the Mount that I think is particularly set up for uh, Theophilus. When you come to chapters 7 and 8, we read about Jesus uh, paying special attention to the outcasts. He heals a centurion's servant, and whenever he's on his way to heal the centurion, uh, his servant, the centurion sends messengers and says, he has enough power and authority. If he just says that this man will be healed, he'll be healed. I'm, I'm a man of authority. I know I tell somebody to go, and they go, and they do whatever I tell them to do. I know that he can just say that this man will be healed, and he'll be healed. And Jesus says, I've not seen such faith in Israel. You're a Roman who's reading that. How are you feeling? There's hope for me. You know, there's hope for me that I can have great faith, greater faith even than those who are Israelites and, and Jews. Uh, he shows compassion on a widow's son after that. And then later on, as you get into chapter 8, you read about uh, women who are accompanying Jesus. Oh, in chapter 7, you have the woman who comes into Simon the Pharisee's house. She cries over Jesus' feet and, and anoints his feet with oil. And Jesus uh, looks at Simon the Pharisee and he says, she, uh, she is loved much because she's been forgiven much. And he gives them a parable to help them understand uh, that she's loved much because she's forgiven much. You have loved me little because you've been forgiven little. You're a Gentile reading that like we are. That's exciting. If you're, if you're someone who's not been going to church all your life and you've, you've not yet really experienced the forgiveness, and then you experience it and you recognize how forgiven you are and how undeserving you are of it, then you're going to have a greater love and affection. And if you've been going to church all your life, I hope you can recognize that in yourself as well and that you can have a greater affection toward God because of his compassion and mercy that he has shown to you. So there's that picture in chapter 7 again repeated. In chapter 8, again, we have that picture of women accompanying Jesus, a parable about the sower, uh, and then him healing uh, a woman who is bleeding for a period of time and healing Jairus' daughter, who was a, a, a leader of the synagogue, who would have been an enemy of Jesus. There's Jesus showing love for his enemy in the midst of all of this healing that's going on, okay? So a lot of these stories are kind of fresh, and, and we remember a lot of that as we study through the other prophets. Whenever we come into chapter 9, it's kind of a transitional text where we read a lot of those same kinds of things that we read in the others, but then we kind of change over into a new section that is, is going to start a bunch of new information after you get uh, through with chapter 9, okay? In chapter 9, you've got the transfiguration, uh, you've got the picture of um, the, the fighting over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom uh, and him foretelling his death and, and telling them to take up their cross and follow him. But then you get to verse 51 of chapter 9, and it's kind of a transition. It goes from him kind of being in Galilee among all of the, the other you know, um, Gentile region and Gentile people. And it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You get the picture that he is now focused on going to Jerusalem. And because he's now going to Jerusalem, you kind of wonder, okay, what's he going to say to help Theophilus as he approaches the city of the Jews and he deals with all of the craziness of, of the Israelites that we've read about in Matthew? Well, his main point throughout all of that is he, as he sets his 
his face toward Jerusalem is he kind of changes his tone a little bit. And he, he kind of uh, changes the way that he's, he's talking and teaching. It's not all about showing the, the compassionate nature of Jesus. It's really about showing how Jesus is so different from anything that the world has ever seen before. Jesus, uh, throughout this section, reveals how different his teachings are. And if, you're, uh, if you've read Matthew and Mark in great detail and you come into chapter 10, first thing you notice is here he is sending out 72. He sent out the 12 earlier, now he's sending out 72. That's new information. But then he gets into a lot of parables, a lot of stories uh, that all point to Jesus being different from anything that the world has ever seen before. Um, you skip over to chapter 14, and you look at verse 25. Notice these words coming out of the mouth of Jesus. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see in this that Jesus has these, these, these shattering words. You must hate your father and mother and brothers and sisters. I mean, that's, that's terrifying. Like, why would Jesus say to do that? Well, the point is, you have to let go of this world in order to be my disciple, in order to accept me. And, and he gives all kinds of parables throughout this whole section. If you were to study through, you would see a lot of parables that you don't see in any other uh, books. You've got the two debtors that was mentioned with the woman back in chapter 7, but then you've got all of these new parables. The Good Samaritan, only found in, in Luke. That's in chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. You've got the friend who was unwilling to wake up and to give food to another friend in the middle of the night because his family's asleep, but he eventually does. That's in chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. You've got the parable of the rich fool. That's only here in Luke, in chapter 12, verses 13 through 20. There's a parable about a barren fig tree that he tends to for three years, and it never produces anything. That's only here. Uh, the parable about the lost coin is only here, and then the, the lost son is only here in Luke 15. There's an unrighteous manager who is very shrewd, and that's a very confusing parable, but it's given to help understand the value of being shrewd and making wise decisions for your future. Uh, there's the parable or the story, I don't know whether it's a story or a parable, of the rich man and Lazarus in chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. That's only found here in Luke. 
Uh, a parable about an unjust judge to talk about prayer. And the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember the tax collector says, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, think about how that very easily connects to the theme and the idea of God's compassionate nature and desire to be compassionate toward the sinner who is at the outer fringes. The lost son the, the, is the parable of the prodigal son. That's the same kind of idea. The father will be very compassionate and merciful. And as you go through all of this, you're going to see a lot of stories that, that just show that God is different than anything that men can come up with. Uh, he, just, he, he shows himself uh, to be the opposite in many ways from what we would typically think that God is. And Jesus himself uh, handles things very differently. Um, so that's, that section, I didn't know how to summarize that. It's just a lot of information that, that really shows Jesus is so different. And it's all, a, a lot of it, like 85% of it is new information that you don't get out of the other Gospels. Uh, so go and read that and study that uh, whenever you have a chance. Whenever you get to chapter 20, you notice uh, a picture of judgment in chapters 20 and 21 that's very concise for this book. I mean, it's, he spends a lot of time on other things throughout this book. But whenever he comes into the description about uh, the judgment of Jerusalem, he's very concise, probably because Theophilus doesn't have a whole lot of interest in Jerusalem necessarily, but it does prove his messiahship, whenever just a few years from the time this is written, Jerusalem will be destroyed, and that is written in this book, the prophecy. Whenever we get to chapter 22, we learn about the plot to kill Jesus, and we, we read in that all the information about uh, Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, about uh, Jesus foretelling Peter's denial, and then praying at the Mount of Olives, uh, him being betrayed, him being denied, and him being put before the trial in chapter 22. Then chapter 23, we read about him before Pilate, and it gives us additional information about this, about his, his trial before an official. Interesting, right? And he kind of paints Pilate in a positive light. Like Pilate kept trying to free Jesus, and yet the, the, the Jews just kind of overpowered him and overruled him. That's fascinating. And it also tells us about Jesus going before Herod. Herod, who wanted to see Jesus earlier, now gets the chance to see Jesus, and he also uh, fails to set him free. So if you're a Roman official reading this chapter, I mean, that might be something that you learn a lot from. Then we learn in chapter 24 about the resurrection of Jesus. And what's most interesting about this chapter compared to the other resurrections is the fact that Jesus is on the road to Emmaus during this chapter, uh, after he is resurrected. And he meets men, and he opens their, their understanding to how the Christ must suffer as it has been written in the Old Testament. And then we read about him coming after those two disciples go and tell the disciples, the, the twelve disciples. We read about him appearing to them, and they get to see him, they get to touch him, they get to experience that he is alive most surely. And then it says, he opened their minds so that they could understand the things that had happened. So that sets everything up for the book of Acts, which is the second volume of Luke's writing. Uh, so, so overall, this is a, a, a description of Jesus's life that's trying to help a, a man to understand the value of humility, the value of mercy, the value of 
compassion. Jesus was full of compassion for the weak and the humble. He showed love to people that no one else would show love toward. Uh, Those who were sinners and tax collectors, we read about them uh, loving Jesus and Jesus loving them in return. We read about him going into Matthew, the tax collector's house, and feasting with a whole group of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, and, And he just, he loved people. He was compassionate toward people. He cared about people. Even those who weren't asking him for anything, in some ways he was hoping to reach out to them and show them love as well. And the point in the picture throughout the book is he expects all of those who follow him to be like him in showing love toward the outsiders. He expects us to avoid the traps of being proud, of being stingy, of being selfish, of being... uh, just completely absorbed in how much power or money we can, uh, we can create for ourselves. He doesn't want us to be like that at all. He wants us to be different from the world, and he wants us to show compassion toward others. Luke is really focused in on the compassion and the character of Jesus as you read through the book. So how does that help us? Well, as, as we've read through the other Gospels, I've kind of said they're usually a really good tool to, to go and to teach this type of person. Matthew be a great tool to talk to somebody who's religious and kind of self-righteous. Uh, Mark would be a good tool for somebody who knows nothing about God. Well, Luke is m- much more just for the Christian to, to kind of grow and to learn about how to live the Christian life. It's, like I said, it's kind of like a handbook for us to help us along the way because we struggle in some ways, Right? I mean, if you struggle to show compassion to strangers or you struggle to show compassion toward an outsider or your enemy, Luke is the book you need to be going to and reading and studying. You need to spend time in that book until your heart is full of love and and understanding how Jesus reacted to those who were the least fortunate. Jesus is full of compassion, and he wants that from us as well. Statements throughout the book that really stood out to me that this is the case is that picture of that woman crying at Jesus' feet. Simon says, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and he would not let her touch his feet. And Jesus says, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. We need to let that sink into our hearts. If we've been forgiven much, which we all have, and we recognize that, then love should just pour out of our hearts toward everyone, especially toward God. We should be merciful to those around us. As you read other parables, uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, whenever the question is asked, who was a neighbor to the Samaritan or to the, to the Jew who was beat up on the side of the road? It wasn't the Levite, it wasn't the priest or the religious person, it was the Samaritan who was a neighbor. And so a picture, again, that we're supposed to be compassionate toward those who are weak and in need and suffering. That's the picture of God throughout the Bible, that he cares about the widow, he cares about the orphan, and we're supposed to do the same thing. And even those who are our enemies. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? Whenever he comes to his senses and he decides to come back to his father, that the father was looking for him. It says he saw him while he was still a long way off and he ran out to meet him and felt compassion for him and killed the fatted calf. I mean, overall, in the book of Luke, 
this is the kind of picture that we get. That we're supposed to be people who are full of love. It should, we should be immersing ourselves in the book of Luke and then saturated with love as we go out into the world. God's love is available for us all. And it, the opportunity is here for us to be obedient, to submit to his will, uh, to repent of our sins and to find forgiveness of all the sins that we've committed. And the book of Luke is a wonderful reminder as we read it that we're going to have to grow in that, right? Theophilus, if he is a Roman official, I don't know. Uh, he needed to grow in that. And he needed to make wise decisions that are based not on what benefits him, but more so based on what shows the, that Christ is living in him. And we all need to do the same, even though we may not be a, an official. Uh, maybe we're not even a boss uh, with employees or anything like that. We need to be people who have great compassion and mercy. Uh, if you're here tonight and you've not obeyed the gospel, God wants to show you tremendous compassion tonight. He wants to provide for you the forgiveness of your sins through the blood of Jesus. And if there's anything that we can do to help you with that, uh, will you please let us know. Please come as we stand and as we sing.